Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas history podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I hope you're enjoying another hot Texas summer. One of our favorite sports in Texas is complaining about the heat and humidity, but as an astute friend of mine noted after he'd lived in Washington, D.C. during the winter, at least you don't have to shovel humidity. Well, it's Monday, August 1st, 2016, and as of last Friday, this show had been downloaded over 25,000 times. Folks, I'm really thankful that so many people are interested in Texas history, but I got to tell you, I never expected the kind of response this show is getting. I'm hearing from listeners all over the country who are really excited about Texas history and are passing this show along to their friends. I hope you'll send this show to your friends and let's keep this momentum going. Let's preserve and promote Texas history. I'd also love to hear from you about show suggestions. I've gotten quite the list already, but there's always room for one more. And don't forget to go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and sign up to support the show and find out how you can have your very own episode of Wise About Texas. Well, today I'm going to continue the series, Texans You Should Know. By now, the regular listeners of this show know I'm a justice on the 14th Court of Appeals, and before that I was a trial judge for about 10 years and a trial lawyer. I can tell you without reservation... That Texas has the best trial lawyers anywhere, I mean anywhere, and you're darn right I'm biased about that. I've taught trial advocacy in other parts of the country, and there is no better group of lawyers than right here in Texas. Texas has some legendary characters in its courtrooms, and today I want to cover one of the first notable trial lawyers in Texas, Temple Lee Houston. So let's go back to the 1860s and get wise about Texas. Sam Houston and his wife, Margaret, had eight children. Now, that's quite an accomplishment because Sam was 47 when they married. On August 12, 1860, their youngest child, a boy, was born in the governor's mansion. He was the first child born in the governor's mansion, and Governor Houston and Margaret decided to name him after Margaret's father, Temple Lee. Governor Houston was 67 when Temple was born and unfortunately died when Temple was almost three. His mother lived a little bit longer, but by the age of seven, Temple Houston was an orphan. After his mother's death, young Temple went to live with his older sister, Nanny, in Georgetown. From an early age, though, Temple exhibited the vibrant personality that would mark his career in the courtroom. One story holds that when he was only five, he was living in Independence, Texas with his mother, Margaret, and some Confederate soldiers were returning from the war. Well, Temple went out and met him in the street waving a cavalry saber that somebody had given him, yelling that if they were rebels, they could pass, but if they were Yankees, they could not. And the returning soldiers apparently cheered him mightily. When Temple was only 13, he decided to join a cattle drive to Kansas. And by all accounts, he was a good cowboy, but he didn't linger in Kansas very long. He went and got a job as a clerk on a riverboat heading down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. And on that boat, he ran into a senator that was a friend of his father's, and he got a job as a page. Temple got a job as a page in the United States Senate. Well, when he was 16, he returned home to Georgetown and announced that he was ready to be educated. So by the time he was 16, he had driven a herd of cattle to Kansas, he'd worked on a riverboat, and he'd been a page in the U.S. Senate. So he had quite the early career. Well, he decided to attend the new, and of course, I'm sure, already very well-regarded Texas A&M University. And he graduated in a little over a year on a two-year program as a second lieutenant. 
He wasn't much interested in the agriculture or mechanics, though. He preferred literature and military tactics, and for some reason he was particularly enamored with Napoleon Bonaparte. Well, in A&M's earliest days, they had trouble organizing and getting the agriculture and mechanics taught, and they changed to a four-year program right then Well, Temple decided to return home to independence. He He went and entered Baylor University, which was then located in independence, and he stayed in the old house where he had grown up with his mother. Now, the house had been sold to a family named Williams, but they let him live there. Well, remaining with the house was many of his father's old paper and some of his artifacts, including Santa Ana's saddle. This was significant because his mom, Margaret Houston, before she died, had asked the president of Baylor University, a gentleman named William Carey Crane, to write a biography of Sam Houston. And Crane did that, but not until 1884. However, Temple spent many days assisting Crane in his work and reviewing his father's papers and records. Temple also took to the academic program at Baylor and ended up with a bachelor's degree in philosophy by the time he was 19, so he was quite the student when he put his mind to it. Now, he tried to join the Texas Bar, but you had to be 21 to get a law license. Now, I'm not sure how this happened, but the story is that the state bar, for some reason, took the ages of Houston and two of his fellow graduates who were a lot older and averaged them so everybody ended up over 21. So now Temple Houston was a licensed lawyer. Houston then moved to Brazoria to begin a law practice. And we've talked about the Brazoria and Velasco area many times on this show, and in the late 1800s, it was a thriving commercial center. The railroads had started to come to the area, and it was certainly a good place to begin a law practice. Now, politics did not wait long on young Temple Houston, and Houston was elected Brazoria County Attorney before he turned 21. Now, one would have to assume that being Sam Houston's son certainly opened some doors for him, but remember, Houston had accomplished a lot in only 21 years. He was obviously very smart and was beginning to build quite a reputation as an orator. On August 25th, 1881, the first San Jacinto Monument was dedicated, and it's still there, by the way. Most of the Texians who died at San Jacinto, and there were between 9 and 12, depending on which accounts you read, Those Texians were buried under the oak trees near the Texian camp. Most of them were. Their wooden gravestones by 1881 were disappearing, and the legislature appropriated some money for a monument. Some local folks raised additional money, and a dedication ceremony took place near the old Texian camp. And this was a big day in Texas history, and they chose Temple Houston as their speaker even though he was only 21, and that tells you how good a speaker he must have been. Well, he rose to the occasion, and his address is pretty awesome. When describing what the early settlers saw upon their arrival in Texas, he said, quote, Texas, lovely Texas, was as fair, as fresh, and as beautiful as was Eden when God, delighted, gazed on the newborn world. He also described the soldiers of San Jacinto saying, quote, Sterner warriors or truer patriots than those who guarded the liberty of Texas on that immortal day never trod a battlefield. Their valor needs no eulogy. Fame's clarion has sounded their praises, and earth is the only limit of their renown. Close quote. Well, needless to say, Houston's speech was very well received, and his fame continued to grow. In 1881, the 35th Judicial District was created for the northern panhandle part of Texas. Now, this was 
truly the Wild West. And the center of the 35th Judicial District was to be the rough-and-tumble town of Mobita. Now, Mobita is spelled M-O-B-E-E-T-I-E. And I've always been told that it's pronounced Mobita. But I welcome any listener out there who, uh, to correct my pronunciation, if you think it should be pronounced differently, particularly any, any listeners who actually live in Mobita. Anyway, when a judicial district is created, you appoint a judge, but you also have to have a district attorney as a prosecutor. Now, the governor at the time was Warren Roberts. The legislator who filed the bill creating the district and the lobbyist who pushed it suggested that the district attorney should be a gentleman named I.N. Roach. Roach, however, was a political enemy of Roberts, so there was no way that the governor was going to appoint him. Roberts appointed a prosecutor from Albany, Texas, named Jim Browning. Well, Browning resigned fairly quickly because he was apparently unsatisfied with the pay and the fact that you'd have to travel hundreds of miles being a prosecutor up there. Well, Roberts, the next choice, uh, had already heard of the lawlessness in the area. In fact, it was unsafe to even enter the courtroom without a pistol, so he decided that was not for him. And Roberts had heard of the young hotshot from Brazoria County, and he ended up offering the gig to Temple Houston. Well, Houston got the approval of his girlfriend, Laura, who he had planned to marry and would, in fact, later marry. And Houston took off for the panhandle. Now, taking off for the panhandle in those days meant that he had to take a train to the end of the line and then get on a stagecoach and head into Mobita. Now, he knew he was approaching Mobita because there was a trail of empty whiskey bottles leading the way. Well, the whiskey bottles provided a clue as to how the panhandle of Texas was developing during this time. Now, I'll save a lot of the detail about the ranching industry for different episodes on ranching, but suffice to say, there were some big ranches all over the panhandle, and big ranches need lots of cowboys. And the cowboys at the time enjoyed a well-deserved, rough reputation. Cow work was hard, life on the big ranches was lonely, Very few of those big ranches would ever tolerate drinking or gambling, and there certainly were no girls to flirt with out on the prairie. So at the first opportunity, the cowboys would head into Mobita to, uh, put it modestly, blow off some steam, and that's when things would get western. It was almost a normal occurrence for a cowboy or two to ride their horse right into the bar, the Exchange Saloon being one of the most famous ones, and demand a drink while remaining on their horse. And the cowboys fired their guns whether they were happy, sad, or mad, and bullets flew everywhere all the time. In fact, one lady in Mobita covered her kids with mattresses and put barricades over her door uh, and the wall that faced the street to, to prevent any stray bullets from coming through. So it was a pretty rough place. Cowboys would gamble their wages, which naturally led to disagreements, and of course, the guns would come out. So Mobita was a rough place. They also had some problems at the courthouse. At one point in the summer, the wind, and there's always a wind in the panhandle if you've ever been there, blew the roof off of the jail in the courthouse. Well, the county commissioners decided to replace the roof and make some other improvements. However, one of the interesting parts of the town was that the children of Mobita had their school in the upper floor of the courthouse. So while the construction was going on, uh, on the jail, the prisoners who were being housed in the courthouse now would get the children who were going to school in the courthouse to bring them chalk, and they'd entertain the kids by drawing pictures. And the kids, of course, were very interested to gawk at the prisoners. Well, the prisoners who weren't entertaining the kids were busy sawing away the metal plates in the jail cells, so eventually they escaped, every single one of them. 
Now, the Wheeler County Grand Jury got together and investigated this and condemned the county officials for not building a secure jail, but at the same time, they cautioned that maybe the jail wasn't sanitary enough, so that grand jury had some strong opinions. They also said that they've tried to return the indictments they deemed necessary in the county, but that the county was so thinly populated that the grand jury thought it was better to maybe look the other way on certain offenses against public morals and focus more on the serious crimes rather than on crimes the community would think frivolous. In other words, that grand jury wasn't worried about gambling, prostitution, or drunkenness. So it was game on in Mobita, and that set the tone when young Temple Houston arrived to be the prosecutor. And I guess it would be pretty difficult for the prosecutor to gather witnesses and serve subpoenas when you're dealing with so much, hundreds, hundreds, and thousands of square miles of open range. But uh, Temple Houston did manage to convene a grand jury. Uh, legendary Texas Ranger and pioneer rancher Charles Goodnight was on Houston's first grand jury, as a matter of fact. And that particular jury, grand jury, handed down a number of indictments, but they, they too issued a statement almost apologizing for having to enforce the law and making clear that they were doing their best to follow the conscience of the community. So I guess they were a little concerned that there'd be folks waiting for them outside the grand jury room when they got done in this rough town. Well, Houston's first grand jury also went a little bit different direction than that other grand jury who had talked about um, maybe not enforcing so many of the laws. Houston's grand jury alleged that there were, in fact, many respectable families in Mobita, and here's what they said, quote, we, while we have no desire to prosecute or oppress women of bad character in their unfortunate and fallen condition, yet we think the plying of their vocation and wanted bad behavior on public streets and in broad daylight is something which common decency alone calls for suppression, close quote. So that was a little more of a law and order approach for Mobita's soiled doves, if you will. Now, if you look at the court records of the time, you're going to see names of some of these ladies. So, uh, one called the Belle of Mobita. There was Red Nellie. There was the Little Queen and my favorite, Frogmouth Annie. Well, Houston, uh, Temple Houston and the district judge, the district judge was a 300-pound guy named Frank Willis. They tended to want to take a little slower approach to reforming the town. And uh, there was a new grand jury by this time, and they didn't really like that slow approach. And they ended up indicting the sheriff and a couple of constables and a couple of justices of the peace for being too lenient on people. Now, those cases didn't get too far, but that was certainly a strong statement. In the meantime, Tuscosa, Texas, had become another site uh, for court in several counties of the district, requiring the judge to hold court, the judge of the judicial district to hold court in two different places. Now, today, they would have just created a new district, but for some reason, they just created a new uh, sort of a sub-district with Tuscosa to be the location of the new courthouse. Anyway, the, uh, Judge Willis and, and Temple Houston and other court staff would now have to try cases 120 miles to the west in yet another rough and tumble town. Now, in case you don't think Tuscosa was rough, one of the deputy sheriffs in Tuscosa had once ridden with Billy the Kid, and they, in fact, remained good friends. That was a guy named Henry Brown. One day, a drunk cowboy ran away without paying a fine that the justice of the peace had ordered paid. 
and Brown sent word that that fugitive better come back or Brown was going to kill him. Well, the cowboy came back and paid up, but he cussed out Brown and he cussed the town of Tascosa. So reportedly Brown put his gun on a chair and took a few steps back and looked at the cowboy and said, there's my gun and you're as close as I am. So put up or shut up. Well, the cowboy shut up. Houston got his first murder case in Tuscosa in 1882. There was a guy named Henry McCuller who was a kind of a hot-tempered guy who had come to Tuscosa from, of course, Mobita. And one night he was playing money, and he caught the dealer cheating, or he thought he was cheating. The dealer was a guy they called Mexican Frank Lark. Well, Lark knew McCuller was a McCuller was a tough guy, so. When the argument started, Lark just lifted his holster under the table and without even drawing his gun, shot McCuller in the stomach under the table. Well, Lark took off to New Mexico, but they caught him and returned him to trial. And back then, uh, a court that was in session was a big deal, and there were hundreds in town for that trial. Well, Houston prosecuted him, got a guilty verdict, and a 21-year prison sentence for Mexican Frank. Well, while while that court was in session... Another card game went sideways, and two guys ended up dead in a gunfight. Well, Houston handled this one a little more easily, called it self-defense. Now, I'm not sure how his grand jury felt about that, but that's what he did. And another night, uh, during that same time period, somebody came to town flashing a lot of cash around, and he ended up drunk and passed out in a room in one of the saloons, which was not an uncommon occurrence, but... He was later found shot through the head, and his pockets, of course, were empty. So his brother was a cowboy at one of the nearby large ranches. So he came into town when he heard about what happened to his brother and started hanging around, flashing some cash to a particular bartender who was a suspect in his brother's death. And then the the cowboy faked like he was going to pass out and went up to his room hoping that the bartender would come up and rob him. Well, that didn't happen. So the cowboy, who was obviously greatly disappointed, just walked downstairs and shot the bartender dead. Before Houston could get to Tuscosa to prosecute him, the brother's fellow cowboys arrived and tore the back wall out of the jail, allowing him to escape. So Tuscosa was proving to be just as rough as Mobita ever was. Well, Houston happened to have a wonderful skill that no doubt helped him become a better prosecutor in this area of Texas, and that was that he was a great shot. And there's another story out there that one day, Bat Masterson and Billy the Kid were both in town, and Masterson suggested a shooting contest between Temple and Billy the Kid. So apparently Masterson threw a plug of tobacco with a tin star stuck in it up in the air, and Temple Houston proceeded to shoot it in the air on the first shot. Billy the Kid reportedly said nobody could do better than that and just gave up. Now, I don't know if that story's true, but it ought to be. Well, during this period, Houston also became known for dressing uh, in a very flashy costumes. He'd often, often wear tailored buckskin from Mexico. He'd wear a wide-brim Mexican sombrero with a big silver eagle on it and must have been quite a sight because he also carried a wide-handled revolver that he called Old Betsy. So no doubt Temple Houston was the best dressed around. Well, traveling between the courthouses up in this area of Texas could also be an adventure. And in those days, the court staff and the judge and the lawyers would often travel together. So on one trip, the group decided to try and walk across the Canadian River. Now, the Canadian River was running high at the time, 
and they were running late for court. So they decided to just leave their bags and walk across the river. And they'd come back and get everything when when the river went down. So everybody stripped down and started across. Well, one of the lawyers, a guy named Woodman, had the only copy of the current Texas statutes in the panhandle. Now, Judge Willis, as I mentioned earlier, was a very large man and apparently not a very good swimmer. So Temple Houston and another lawyer took on the full weight of the law, so to speak, and put Judge Willis on their shoulders for the trip across the river. At one point, the rushing river tore the law book from Lawyer Woodman's hands, causing him to yell, Save the statutes of Texas, to which the judge replied, Let the law go. Save the district court. Must have been quite a scene, but speaking for myself, please always save your local judge. Temple remained a fairly free spirit. At one point, he got fined for being drunk in court, and another time got a fine for using improper language. In fact, this happened several times, but he was gaining fame for being a great lawyer. He was very popular with the men and was a favorite with all the women. By all accounts, he was an expert at courtly manners, and his education had made him a very popular orator and raconteur. Well, in 1884, Houston put that popularity to use. He resigned his post as the district attorney, and he ran for the Texas State Senate. Well, he was elected by a huge margin. One of his first important actions as a state senator was to author the bill that provided for the purchase of the Alamo and its restoration. While in the Senate, he opened a law practice back in Mobile, and he had, by that time, returned to Brazoria County and married his girlfriend, Laura, and they had a son, Temple Jr., and a daughter, Louise, who unfortunately died of cholera while Temple was in Austin for the 1887 session. Temple continued, however, to build a great reputation, and he had to turn down an eager throng of people who wanted him to run for Congress. Fast forward to 1888. In 1888, the present-day state capitol building was completed, and Temple Houston was selected to give the keynote address at the dedication. Well, he went all the way back to the 1500s discussing the history of the state. He praised the state's founding fathers, saying, quote, It should not be forgotten that the Texas Constitution was framed amid an overwhelming invasion, that participation in the proceedings of that convention was threatened by death, and that those who drafted the Constitution laid down their pens to grasp the sword, that Texas was indeed bored amid clash of arms and rocked in the cradle of war. Close quote. Houston um, went on to say, quote, the principles which they proclaimed at Washington on the 2nd of March, 1836, they, 50 days later, at San Jacinto, sealed with their blood. Close quote. So that was quite the speech. Well, that night there was a grand dedication ball, but Houston skipped it. Instead, he was over at the Driscoll Hotel meeting with some political operatives about his future, especially they wanted him to run against Richard Koch, who was now a U.S. senator from Texas. Well, that didn't sit too well with Temple because of his tremendous fondness for Senator Koch. As a boy, Temple had been aware of the 1873 election, which I discussed in my earlier episode on the Davis-Koch election, and Temple thought governor might be a good next step. Well, his supporters readily agreed. Temple asked for their advice on his platform, and the Kingmakers told him he could just run on his last name and his fame as Sam Houston's son. Well, Temple, Temple reportedly went ballistic and said, quote, A man is only what he makes himself. If a lion, he can fight his own battles. 
If a weakling, no rumor of distinguished lineage can make him strong. Close quote. I love that quote from him, and I think it reveals a lot about Temple Houston's character. Now, after that meeting, Temple decided to leave politics and go back to his law practice. And by this time, he had become the general counsel for the Santa Fe Railroad, and apparently had had enough of politics. Well, Mobita had begun to decline, and Temple moved to Canadian Texas in 1890. He continued his trial practice um, and was gaining even greater reputation as a courtroom lawyer. One time during a trial when he caught the witness in several conflicting statements, he told the jury, gentlemen, I'm sure you realize this witness has told a damnable lie. Well, the judge immediately reprimanded him for his bad language, but he let him off that time. Well, Houston ended up saying it again, and the judge fined him 20 bucks. Well, Houston responded by pulling out two empty pockets and saying, Judge, you embarrass me. I don't have $20. Can I borrow it from you? Well, the judge ordered the clerk to give Houston $20 to pay the fine, saying that the county can afford to lose $20 more than the judge could. Well, in the same trial, the prosecutor told the jury to put no stock in anything Temple Houston had said. Well, Temple apparently rose for his closing argument and stated, quote, Your Honor, the prosecutor is the first man I've ever seen who can strut sitting down, close quote. So he really did uh, command a presence in the courtroom. Now, despite all his success, it seems like that Houston was always looking for the next new and unsettled area. He had become quite the critic of the Texas legal system, and um, but next, he looked next door to Oklahoma, and things were getting pretty exciting. The railroads were coming through. The cities were springing up. So Temple sensed an opportunity and moved his family to Woodward, Oklahoma, in 1893. He continued as a big personality in Oklahoma. He had befriended one of the judges, a Judge Burford, and uh, Houston knew that Judge Burford didn't like snakes. So in one case, Houston walks into court with satin pants, a silk shirt, and one of those big cravats made out of rattlesnake skin. Um, no word on whether he was arrested that day. Another day, Houston came to court a little nervous, and Judge Burford looked down. He said, darn it, Temple, I told you not to come to court after you'd been drinking. Well, Houston insisted the judge was wrong. He hadn't had a drink for a week, and then it was just an old drunk wearing off. Well, the judge didn't buy it, and Temple reportedly said, quote, don't you know, Judge, that you have to have one to get over one that's lasted a long time, close quote. Apparently, the judge just laughed and let it go. So Houston was quite the character. Um, he also reportedly carried a bottle of hot sauce everywhere he went, Tabasco hot sauce, and uh, that it was so hot that no one else but him could eat it, but that he put it on everything. Well, Houston continued his trial practice, and he ended up in a feud at one point due to a lawsuit that almost cost him his life. There was a family named Jennings, and there were four sons, Ed, John, Frank, and Al. All of them were lawyers, all four of them. Their father was a judge. It was Judge J.D.F. Jennings. And the four brothers, or three of the four brothers, lived in Woodward, Oklahoma. And the story goes that Houston first encountered the Jennings brothers when he had sued for the recovery of a horse that had been sold to John Jennings, and Jennings apparently didn't pay for it. Well, that case was in the court of the father. So the defendant's father was the judge. And the judge, the father, judge, actually ruled against his son, the defendant. But what he wouldn't do is issue an order ordering his son to return the horse. 
And that led Temple Houston to refuse to try any more cases in that judge's court. And I have no doubt that Temple went around town voicing his opinion about how that case had worked out. Well, later, Houston was on the opposite side of a case against two of the brothers who were representing the opposing parties, Ed and John Jennings. And they were arguing over over some evidence, and Houston accused Ed Jennings of being grossly ignorant of the law. Well, Ed lost his mind, called Houston a damn liar, and tried to reach out and slap him in court. Both of them drew their guns. Now, remember, this is a courtroom during a trial. Both of them drew their guns, but nobody got shot, and the judge wisely adjourned the court for the day. Well, later that night, after a little bit of time in a saloon, uh, Houston found... Ed Jennings said, I want to see you in a minute. And Jennings turned around and said, you can see me right now, you blankety-blank, drew his gun. Well, Houston drew and fired and was quicker. And after several shots, a a gun battle, really, Houston's gun was empty, so he threw it at Ed. And by this time, his brother John Jennings was involved. Um, Houston was there with a man named Love. Love shot John Jennings in the arm. Ed Jennings later ended up dying but it was discovered that they thought Houston had killed him, but Houston had grazed him in the head with a bullet, but someone else had shot him in the back of the head. So most think that it was his own brother's friendly fire accident, but Ed ended up dead in that gunfight. And Temple Houston was charged with manslaughter. Well, he sat there calmly during his trial, drawing pictures of Napoleon, and the jury found him not guilty on the basis of self-defense. Well, that didn't sit well with one of the other Jennings brothers, Al. Al swore he would kill Temple Houston. Well, Houston was found himself in court in Canadian, Texas, one day, and word got to him that Al Jennings was headed for Woodford, Woodward, Oklahoma, to carry out his threat. Well, apparently that was more exciting than the trial because Houston immediately headed back to Woodward to face Al. Houston made it home safely, though, and uh, Jennings later told somebody that he had a rifle trained on Houston through a window, but that Mrs. Houston had passed in front of the window. Now, I doubt that story, and most people doubt it, and nobody actually saw him at Woodward, but that was almost some excitement. Well, Jennings, uh, Al Jennings, ended up trying to become a train robber, and he wasn't very good at it. He ended up caught near Muskogee, Oklahoma, And uh, after he was arrested and Temple heard about it, Temple Houston sent word to him that he'd be glad to be Jennings' defense lawyer. And Jennings obviously refused that kind offer. And Jennings ended up with life in prison for robbing trains. Houston also continued to get approached to go back into politics, but he steadfastly refused. He was um, supportive of the Democrat Party. However, he certainly was free with his advice to other candidates, but he wouldn't run himself. He loved his family, being around his family. Uh, But that's not to say that he had mellowed all that much. In fact, one time, his son, he had a son, Sam Houston III, and he bought his son, Sam, a pony and told him to go uh, find a farmer named Jenkins who had some pasture land and arranged to rent some pasture for the pony. Well, the boy had trouble finding Jenkins, but he finally found him in town in a store and asked him about the pasture. Well, Jenkins apparently had been drinking because he didn't take too kindly to the question and spit in young Sam's face. Well, that upset young Sam, and he ran to his father's office in tears, and uh, that did it. Houston immediately busted out of his office, strode down the street, and Jenkins must have sobered up pretty quick, cause, but he figured out he couldn't escape, and uh, 
He reached for his gun. Well, Houston had old Betsy out of her holster in a flash and shot Jenkins twice. Well, Jenkins ended up living, and uh, Houston surrendered and was allowed to plead guilty to a mere misdemeanor for unlawful shooting of his gun. So uh, you don't mess with Temple Houston or any man's children. Well, I want to talk about two cases right quick that are the cases for which Temple Houston is best known. One time, Temple shot at the jury. That's right. He shot at the jury. You see, he, he was representing a young cowboy, and the cowboy was accused of shooting and killing a rancher who had accused that young cowboy of killing of stealing a horse. Well, Houston uh, put on a self-defense claim. His argument was that the rancher was well-known as a quick draw, and the cowboy had no choice but to fire first. And he argued to the jury that the rancher had a tremendous reputation for speed with his gun, and he could draw and fire faster than anyone. And he walked up to the jury box, he said, like this. And with that, he drew his gun and fired it, started firing at the jury. Now, of course, he had blanks at his gun, but that didn't matter. The jury scattered. Uh, the audience fled, screaming out of the courtroom, and even the judge dove behind the bench. Well, after a good while... Order was restored, and the jury found Houston's client guilty. But Houston moved for a new trial because the jury had mixed with the crowd during the firearm-induced recess. Well, the judge had no choice but to grant the motion for a new trial. Houston ended up with a new jury, and he got a not guilty verdict for his client. But the case that lives probably in more people's memories of Temple Houston than any other is what's called his famous soiled dove plea. You see, in Woodward in Oklahoma in 1899, there was a madam named Minnie Stacy. She was arrested and charged with running a body house, which, of course, meant a brothel. And uh, another way, a funny way they used to describe it was they'd arrest the madam and charge her with running a disorderly house. So anyway, Miss Stacy was arrested and was a very well-known madam, uh, but she was also a victim of context and timing because, as we've seen, the towns in the area were all very rough places. They all had their red light districts and body houses. And as we learned from those early Texas grand juries, some such crimes were tolerated more or tolerated less, depending on the degree the community felt was necessary to keep whatever they thought their version of order was. Well, unfortunately for Miss Stacy, the community was in a period of being frustrated with the number of women who were, in the language of the time, adopting a life of shame. So the, the local newspaper even criticized parents for being too neglectful and too indulgent, allowing girls to walk the streets without virtuous companions or even allowing them to walk alone down the street. Um, the newspaper said all kinds of society were mixed together with unwholesome results. So Miss Stacy was being prosecuted for her conduct, but also being prosecuted as a symbol of what the upright citizens saw as a problem that needed to be dealt with well for some reason this really offended temple houston um he had met with a friend for a couple of drinks before court one day yeah let me say that again he met his buddy in a bar to have a couple of drinks before they went to court for the day and uh, times were sure different back then and he uh, houston was railing against what he felt was an unfair prosecution apparently miss stacy had recently bought a house and the town was going to try to take it from her. Well, Temple told his friend that Miss Stacy didn't have enough money for a lawyer, but Houston was going to defend her, and he was going to, quote, raise the roof, close quote. Well, Houston went over and met with Miss Stacy, volunteered to defend her, met with her for 10 minutes, 
offered no evidence on her behalf during the defense, just his closing argument. Well, in his closing argument, he criticized the prosecution's case, but then he walked up to the jury box and he leaned into the jury close enough to touch him. And in a low voice, he delivered one of history's all-time great closing arguments. Houston appealed to the conscience of the jurors. He alleged that Miss Stacy's circumstances were not of her own choosing. He said, here's a quote from it. He said, quote, Ah, no, gentlemen, one of our own sex was the author of her ruin, more to blame than she. The very promises of God are denied her, Houston said. And he went on to relate some stories from the Bible, including the prodigal son, and alleging even that the prosecutors would have cast the first stone had Jesus himself come down and issued that invitation again. And he closed by invoking Jesus to the jury, stating, quote, No, gentlemen, do as your master did twice under the very circumstances that surround you. Tell her to go in peace. Close quote. Well, the jury acquitted Miss Stacy as soon as they hit the jury room, and the judge reportedly was even moved to tears. A friend of Houston's later indicated that Houston's closing argument uh, on her behalf had so inspired many Stacy that she moved to Canadian Texas, gave up her former life for legitimate employment, and joined the Methodist Church. Well, thousands of copies of Houston's closing were printed over the years, and a framed copy was even placed in the Library of Congress on display. And Houston had delivered it 100% extemporaneously. Well, unfortunately, Temple Houston wasn't destined for a long life, but he made each of his short 45 years count. A few days after his 45th birthday, Houston suffered a fatal brain hemorrhage. He was buried in Elmwood Cemetery in Woodward, Oklahoma. And Temple Houston was an interesting man. Even though his father had died early in his life, he shared his father's guts, his flair for the dramatic, and many of the other traits that we know about old Sam Houston. Temple Houston was a dedicated public servant. He was also a great lawyer and one of the early courtroom masters for which Texas is so justifiably famous. He was definitely a Texan you should know. Well, now we come to the part of the show called Getting There. I want to tell you, you can visit Temple Houston's grave in Woodward, Oklahoma, in the Elmwood Cemetery. I'm going to put some pictures on the website and uh, the location of that cemetery. Mobita, Texas still stands. It's about 85 miles east of Amarillo. they got some great old buildings. It's definitely worth a visit. Uh, I'll put a link on the website to the old Mobita, Texas Association that's got some great information on the town and the buildings that still stand. The town site of Tuscosa now sits within the boundaries of Cal Farley's Boys Ranch, which is also near Amarillo. It's on the west side. There's a museum there. The old Boot Hill Cemetery in Tuscosa is still there, and you can see that. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Wise About Texas. I want to thank you for listening. I hope that this show is as much fun to listen to as it is to produce. If you'd like to support the show and join other patrons of the show, please go to www.patreon.com slash wiseabouttexas. Please go and like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at wiseabouttexas. And if you have a minute, leave a review on iTunes because that helps people find the show. And I thank everybody that's already done that. And I thank the over 25,000 people who have downloaded 
Wise About Texas. We sure appreciate it. So until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road. <laughs>